Welcome to episode seven of Rail Talk. I'm still here in this Saratoga Airbnb, so it must be soon after last week's episode, which was, I think, our Eclipse episode. But this one's going to be pretty damn good as well. We got Lisa Lazarus coming up. My name is Joe Bianca. I'm an ownership at Joe Bianca. I got I to gotta say this name more strongly. I kind of I breeze through it. Joe Bianca, ownership advisor for West Point Thoroughbreds. And John and Patty, you guys got to stop waking me up early in the morning with all of these music references and movie references that are like 30 years before my time. I love you both to pieces, but that's getting rough. Oh, I think I'm going to cry just like you did last week, Joe. Oh. That's so sad. Oh, that's wrong. It's wrong. That's that's true. That's true. You do you need you do need your beauty sleep. This is Jonathan Green, general manager of DJ Stable. And uh Joe, we had quite quite a trek out to Virginia this weekend. Yeah, I went down to Colonial Downs just for the day and it was uh, a little, little dicey getting back, but we'll get into it. And John, I've seen you cry for a lot less. Let's be real. No, there's no question about that. <laughs> Rail Talk is brought to you by The Green Group. Shout out to our friends at The Green Group, Len and John and Carlene and Donna and the whole team. They do a great job. You know, it's not too early to think about your 2024 taxes, especially with all the horse buying and horse trading that's going on right now. I get a lot of questions from West Point partners about the tax benefits. And I always say to them, I got the guy. I'm not a tax expert, but I know one in the industry. Len Green is the preeminent one in this business. We love Len. We love John. And they do a great job. And it was great to see you guys win a bunch of races at Colonial on Saturday, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But in the meantime, go see Len. Talk to Len. He can hook you up with the most savings possible for your 2024 taxes. If you're not losing, using Len in the Green Group, you're losing money. So go see them at greenco.com. Book your consultation. We'd like to welcome our next guest to the Rail Talk hot seat. It's the CEO of the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority, Lisa Lazarus. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. We're super excited to have you. Obviously, it's a very busy time for you. I mean, I feel like it's been a busy time for you for a while. <laughs> yeah, <it's been> <laughs> now, but it's especially a busy time now because of the implementation of the new ADMC control, the ADMC program, and a lot of the new rules that happened this summer, basically. So just Give us, you know, it's a broad question to start, but just give us a state of the union in terms of what you wanted to implement, what yeah. still might be coming, and just the response you've gotten from the racing community. So, you know, we ruled out the anti-doping medication control program on May 22nd. Um, it was sort of a massive logistical undertaking, and I'm really pleased with the way that it's rolled out, just given the challenge. Um, you know, a lot of people sometimes say, well, why didn't you take longer, et cetera? And the answer is that we weren't given that option. You know, Congress had a deadline and um, I think, you know, we, we were able to meet that deadline in a responsible way. There are always things that we can do better. There are definitely some tweaks. And, um, you know, we were working very closely with the laboratories, the six laboratories that are part of the program to make sure that the harmonization is working and that results are coming back um, quicker. Uh, you know, results have not been in the, at the outset as quick as we'd like, but we're, we're definitely improving on that, and I expect that to be resolved very soon. And, um, you know, the program is doing what it's supposed to do. I mean, one thing that I think is probably worth mentioning is, you know, the program was created to be quite harsh on what we call banned substances or doping substances, but to be very reasonable and rational when it comes to medication overages. So people, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, if you have a first time butte overage, 
it's just a $500 fine. There's no suspension. There's no days. There's no provisional suspension. Um, but if you, but if your horse uh, has a doping substance in its system, then it, it's more severe. And, 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 you know, that's, that's the rash. That's the reason that's what we're, that's what we're, we're trying to accomplish basically. And Lisa, one of the things that, that I know a lot of owners and trainers have been, you know, concerned about is let's say that something accidentally happens. I get a contamination, mm-hmm. um, you know, with regard to my horse, you know, how, how can we, how can we as an industry address that? You know, because I, I'm, I'm nervous as an owner that, you know, maybe, uh, maybe, you know, one of the grooms in, in, you know, in, in employment for my trainer um, has a, you know, salon pause patch on or, or, you know, urinates in the stall and is on a medication. And then that there, therefore transfers to the horse. How, how do we know that a contamination is just that a contamination versus an overage? So like a lot of thought and discussion was given to how to approach that issue in the program. And I think we approach it effectively in two different ways. One is we have an atypical findings policy which means that we have 27 substances that if they're detected in a horse's system, it goes through a different path. And the reason is that those substances are identified as those that are more likely than not to be contaminants. Um, What happens is that the trainer gets or the responsible person gets a letter saying, there's an atypical finding in your horse's sample, you know, please help us essentially to figure out what caused it, you know, and if it's if it's bedding, if it's something else, you know, kind of if it's feed, you know, give us the information so we can discern together whether or not it actually was contamination. And if it was and the case gets dropped and nobody ever knows about it. And actually, we've already notified 15 cases um, in our program of atypical findings. That's not public because we don't make those cases public. Um, you know, obviously, anonymized and, and, and just giving a round number is not an issue. But, you know, the, one of the promises of that program is that we don't actually disclose um, if you've been notified of an atypical finding. So 15 of those cases that are going through that separate process. And the other way is to set reasonable screening limits, you know, um, and the intention behind our program is not to capture you know, small amounts that are that are likely to be contamination, but to actually, you know, only capture reasonable levels that that we believe, you know, we were either irresponsibility or intentionally in the horse's system. I want to talk a little bit about the the provisional suspension process that that we've seen in the early stages. You know, John and I spoke about it when a couple of different trainers got two year provisional suspensions. Ray handles was reversed. I believe the other ones have not been yet, um, but I might be wrong on that. Let's just talk about the process, because there's been a lot of inflammatory rhetoric, I think, from some of the lawyers, for some of the trainers talking about how arduous a process it is. It seemed to be pretty expedited, especially by racing standards. So just can you walk us through what happens when there's a provisional suspension? How quickly someone can can uh, can file an appeal? How costly? that is and, and just what goes on in that process? Sure. Well, let me start by just correcting a little bit of misinformation. So first of all, um, no one's had a suspension of two years, a personal suspension of two years. The sanctions for banned substances um, set forth a penalty of up to two years that only is, is decided by the arbitrator once it actually goes to a final hearing. The, the sort of rationale behind a personal suspension is that if there's a positive test for a doping substance in a horse, we believe the risks to the industry, to the to the trainers who are competing fairly, to the gambling public is too high to allow that trainer to continue to race his or her horses 
during the pendency of the case. It's more analogous like administrative leave, you know? Um, when you think an employee's done something wrong, you're not sure, but you need to take them out of the work environment while you investigate. Now, there are, um, there are some important kind of differences between how these are imposed. So if you have a banned substance, it's just one substance and one horse, um, you have the right to ask that the suspension be delayed until your B sample comes back. Um, that option isn't available if you have more than one horse with the same substance, because that creates just too high of a risk to, again, the trainers who are completely clean and, 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 you know, basically the public, the integrity of the sport. Um, now, you're entitled to a hearing almost immediately, like within a few days if you request it. Um, I think there's been a lot of misinformation out there about, uh, you know, trainers not getting quick hearings. Ultimately, it's up to the lawyer and to the, and to the um, responsible person themselves as to how quickly they want a hearing. And, you know, so far, most, if not all, have opted to have a little bit more time to investigate their case, they can mount the best defense possible. And of course, we're gonna always give the responsible person that option, since it's their defense. We want them to feel like they have whatever they need, whatever time they need to mount a proper defense. Sorry, John, I just wanna ask a quick follow-up on that because you know the, the comparison to administrative leave, I think one of the issues that people have with the provisional suspension is that it's very, very hard to wind down and you know empty out barns so, you know, what kind of leeway is there with that? You know, I assume people that have provisional suspensions, you're not coming in and, you know, making them. No, move horses. not at all. So a couple of things. One is um, you don't have to scratch any of your horses if they rent on the overnight. So that's that's one. The second is you don't have to move your horses. You just can't breeze or race a horse once you've been provisionally suspended until it's either lifted or there's a final decision. And one other thing I want to correct is the Ray Handel case, it was not reversed. Um, there's a lot of misinformation about that as well. What happened was that, again, what I said earlier is the calculus is that the risk is too high to the public and to the trainers that are competing fairly to allow that trainer to continue to run horses. In Ray Handel's case, his lawyer immediately presented information to Haiwu that was exculpatory, that, that essentially gave Haiwu the, the view that he had a good chance, a reasonable chance of succeeding on the merits. So then the risk became too high to keep him suspended. So the suspension was lifted, but the case is still very much um, alive and going through the process. It's just that he's not suspended during the pendency of the case. Got it. Okay. No, thank you. Because you're right. There's a lot of misinformation, and and sometimes we're we're reporting it because we think that it's yeah. it's actually factual, which is one of the reasons right. why we wanted you on uh, on the show. So we appreciate it. Um, yeah. Recently, Lisa, there's there's been some letters to the editors. Um, you know, one by an owner uh, of the trainer who who is under investigation. Another is by an attorney. Um, right. You know, who represents a trainer. And and there's a lot. I'm not going to go through it. You know, line by line. But there's a lot of speculation and and legalese going back and forth through this. Do you want to address either one of those or both of them? Sure. So, you know, one difficulty is that, as you can imagine, there's kind of a stable, excuse the, excuse the pun, of, um, <laughs> of equine lawyers who have been handling these types of cases for a long time, right? And they're very used to the racing commission system, okay? So now those same lawyers are being faced with a different system, um, and unfortunately, you know, many of them are not becoming really familiar with the rules before they make statements or argue on behalf of their clients. I read something today um, in, in one of the, I can't remember exactly where I read it, but saying, suggesting that owners don't have the right to be heard if their horse is suspended. That is like categorically false. 
that lawyer obviously didn't read the rules, um, which is really unfortunate for his client. So an owner has the same right to request a B sample. So even if the trainer says, I don't want the B sample, the owner can still request it. The owner has a right to provisional hearing the same way that a trainer does. The owner has the right to intervene in the final hearing to be heard on the issue of whether or not his horse should be suspended. So all of the same rights afforded to trainers are afforded to owners, because of course it is a very important right that owners should have. Um, they should absolutely have due process because their, their ownership in their horse is, is just as important as, um, as the trainer's rights. So, so that is just completely wrong. I have no idea where that lawyer um, got that information, but it certainly wasn't from the rule book. And Lisa, just as a follow up, I mean, in that same letter, he talks about, you know, if you buy a horse that was a weanling and it was given, um, you know, viewed at the time and then, you know, it stays in the system and the horse wins as a two year old. It's, like, it's just all like, I mean, it's actually funny to me. It, it would be funny if it wasn't sad for the clients that he represents. Um, completely false. So first of all, there's only one substance that would result in a horse being suspended for, for its life. And that's bisphosphonates. That's only if they've been administered after May 22nd. So if, you, if your horse got its phosphonates before May 22nd, the effective date of the anti-doping program, that's not an issue. We obviously are, are not going to penalize someone for something that happened before the effective date. Um, I mean, the other issue that that, that article, I think, addresses is, um, is, sort of, is critical of the fact that there are different time frames for how long a horse is suspended based on the substance that was detected. So first of all, the presumptive time frame uh, for horses to be suspended for a banned substance is two months from the date of sample collection. That's the most typical. That's the you know, if there's no if there's no specific time period mentioned in the rules. That's the presumptive time period um, that could be extended. if There's some really serious aggravating factors around neglect or abuse or, or whatever. Um, and the other substances, like an anabolic steroid, it's a longer period of time because science has shown that the, the effects of an anabolic steroid will stay in a horse's system beyond a couple months. It can be six months, 12 months. So there, there's a different time frame so that essentially the trainers who are following the rules, who Heisen needs to protect, are not competing against a horse that had an advantage that it shouldn't have had. You know, I, I think you guys have gotten criticized both ways on, on a certain issue, which is, is transparency and flexibility. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that there have been a lot of people who have wrongly said that this is like a, you know, a top down edict program, mm -hmm. which it's not because you guys have been willing to listen and, and adjust. I think right. there are some other people who have criticized you from the other way and said that if you adjust it too much and you're too flexible, then there's really no hard set of rules for people to follow and, and stick by. So just what is what, what's been your experience so far in terms of balance? that in terms of taking you know valuable insight from people who are on the ground every morning but also having having a core set of principles and rules that stay in place I mean you've you've identified a really key issue you know our mandate is to protect the safety and integrity of horses we've got to do that without destroying the essence of horse racing and without destroying or, or impeding anyone's anyone's rights for due process etc and finding that balance is is complicated you know, we've spent a ton of time stress testing the rules, debating the rules, talking about sanctions before it was launched with a number of different focus groups, um, including horsemen's groups, etc. Now, once you put those rules into practice, it's a whole, whole different world, right? I mean, everyone told us we wouldn't find any banned substances. So when we, you know, we now have like almost 30 positives of banned substances, you know, the impact of that is much more significant. And the answer to your question is, we we have a system that we believe in that is, that is a correct system. 
But some of the nuances of it, once you actually put them in practice, don't always work. And we are very happy to concede when something doesn't work, when a rule is a bad rule. And one of the things I've said is we will change as many times as we need to if a rule is a bad rule. We will not stand on ceremony. But that's not to make things better or worse for any, for any particular stakeholder group. It's just to address issues that, that come up. You know, no one's ever, I know people think, oh, everyone's, you know, commissions have had anti-doping programs forever. No one has ever had a national anti-doping program in racing. And you can't even fathom the, the enormity of that project and all of the logistics and all the considerations. And so, like, like it's, it's not surprising to me that a couple of things have come up that we just didn't get right and we need to correct them. Right. And, and Lisa, one of the things that, that you guys have um, unveiled, especially this, I guess, recently in the past week or so, is the HiWu app. Um, and, and going through, you can see, you know, who's under uh, under appeal and, and, you know, what some of the pending uh, violation matters are, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's great because it, it basically shows you, you know, who in the industry is is under review. Um, when I went through that list and I compared it to my mental list of people that you know, trainers that, that I would say I think are taking an edge, it doesn't doesn't jive. There, there's you know, really none of the guys or, or, or women who are on that list right now um, are ones that I would say this person is taking an edge or, or cheating. How do we how do we catch them? So a couple of things. One is like everyone has a different view on that, right? So that, that's very much, I think, from where you sit in your perspective. Um, you know, when it comes to post-race tests and out of competition and, and work tests, it, it's science. It's super simple. The sample goes to the lab. The lab tests the sample. It comes back positive or negative. Like there's no, there's no judgment involved. There's no opinion involved. It's black or white. Now, obviously, that's not going to catch everything. Um, and just like we saw with, for example, the service in Navarro cases, like you, you may need other tools at your disposal. One of the things that I think is really terrific and groundbreaking about Heise's ADMC program is that we have a really robust investigative team. And they are working, you know, led by Sean Richards, who is the FBI agent who basically built the service in Navarro cases. He's got a number of agents working for him, um, you know, other investigators, along with Sean Lohr, who came from the CHRB. And they are working on some long-term investigations, but those are going to take a little bit longer because, of course, you know, we only launched a couple months ago and, and, and those are not simply, we don't, those can't be approached the same way that you approach a post-race test. And I know you, Joe, sorry, one more follow-up. I, I know you have a tips hotline also. Mm-hmm. Has that been, you know, used, has it been utilized a lot? Have you been getting a lot of tips on, on you know, certain uh, trainers? that? So that I are, don't that personally right review um, that line, but I do hear from the investigations team that it's very heavily used and they've got a lot of good, good information has come through that, that tip line. You know, in that vein, in terms of investigation, I think that this is one of the things that we've all banged the drum about for a while is that you can't just catch cheaters with drug testing, even really robust, you know, very well organized drug testing, which I think this program is surveillance is a big part of it as well. And that's part of the reason that that service in Navarro ended up entangled. What first of all, what's the scope of your authority to do surveillance on the back stretches? And then what has it what has it been like in practice and what do you hope to, to accomplish in that vein? 
So, you know, the scope of our authority is that we can essentially investigate anything that involves the care of a covered horse, you know, the safety and integrity of a covered horse. And so essentially, like our rules follow the horse um, and and the investigators, you know, pursue that very carefully, you know, balancing, obviously, people's rights to privacy, et cetera. Um, but we do have the authority under the act to pursue whatever is necessary um, to determine whether or not a covered horse is either receiving banned or substances or, or being mistreated. And so, um, you know, there, I, I'm not, you know, that, as you can imagine, that team needs to act really independently. I'm actually not even privy to the people they're investigating. Um, there's really a sort of independence to Haiwu that separates us from, from Haiza. That's the way the act kind of created the system. Um, but I do know that, you know, they're working hard and, and that they believe, you know, they will be able to uncover um, certain, certain issues that need to be addressed. Lisa, my final question is, if you had one thing to say to the industry and that you've been doing this for a little while, what's your message? My message is this is for all of the trainers and owners who compete cleanly, which in my view is the vast, vast majority. Call it 98 percent. I don't know what that number is, but I imagine it's somewhere around there. And and this is, you know, I know a lot of folks are worried about their own rights, worried about contamination, worried about being charged when they didn't they didn't actually do. And what I want to say is, I think we've built a really good system to protect against the majority of that happening. You can't you know, you can't foresee every situation, but the rationale of the program is in place to, to, to basically protect um, the clean, the clean trainer, the trainer is following the rules. And ultimately, over time, I think the industry will come to trust that promise and will come to see that actually, you know, our rules are not you know, it's crazy, like some people, some people say, and our rules are actually there to protect the industry. And we have, you know, we have people to protect in terms of our covered persons, our stakeholders, or doing everything right. But we also have the legacy of horse racing to protect. We have the future to protect. And the future needs a national uniform program to be successful and to be ultimately what we all want it to be. It's a great message. Unfortunately, I have one more question because that would have been a great place to put up here. More, more questions, the better. Because <laughs> yeah, no, I, I have a question about track safety because sure. that's, been, that's been a big deal this year as well. We saw the rash of sure. breakdowns and the fatalities yeah. that happened at Churchill Downs. So when something like that does happen, what is your role in terms of intervening? Like, I'm sure you can't you can't just come in and cancel racing. But what is you know, is there an advisory position, an advisory role that you have? What what do you guys do when you see a cluster of breakdowns like we saw? No, we do have the authority to review um, a racetrack's accreditation and make sure that they're doing everything they're required to do under the rules to continue to be able to hold covered races. Um, but we also, you know, a lot of what we do also because the commit, you know, when there's situations like that, the commissions and the track tend to do a really good job investigating whether there's been any rule violations or any malfeasance. Our rule is more to come in, look at the data, look at trends, look at the track measurements, and try to see whether or not we can learn anything from those experiences, to try to avoid them in the future. You know, we're working on right now a couple of really exciting data projects that we hope are going to be really useful in, in sort of predicting those risks because, you know, one great thing about highs is that we do collect a lot of data and now we're getting to a point where we can start to use some of that data. Um, and so that really is, is, is more highs role. Of course, if there's like an emergency, you know, we will step in. Um, but ultimately our role is more to look at prevention and data analysis. 
Yeah, just to follow up on that real quick, I think one of the one of the big programs, I'm not sure if this is one of the things you're referring to, is the stride safe technology, the yes. wearable biometric technology yeah. that can potentially detect yes. breakdowns before they occur. What's right. what's the what's the status of that? Is that something that you guys are involved in in, in expanding throughout the country? Yes, yeah, so that is that is really primarily a project um, that Churchill Downs and a few others are working on and we're very supportive of it. We're looking, we're kind of letting them take that forward. We're looking at other um, sort of other tools tools and other predictive, um, uh, you know, essentially technologies, including, you know, looking at all of the data that we have currently with some of the, the sort of big tech companies to see whether or not we can just use that data as opposed to a wearable. Um, but we definitely support the wearables and, and, and we'll, you know, do anything we can to kind of help bring that to fruition. Got it. All right. Well, Lisa Lazarus, one thing that you've done very, very well throughout this whole process is answer questions, haven't ducked an interview or, or a meeting. So we appreciate you coming on Rail Talk and explaining a lot of this to our audience. Hope to see you again soon. Great. Thank you both so much. I appreciate the opportunity. And Great I time. love this podcast, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, you're thank definitely you. coming back. Well, and, and you I might even be able to name week. a horse now, Lisa. If you want to name a horse, you can name a horse. If you want to, <laughs> I'm giving that away like pe- like peppermints these days. I do right? not think I am worthy. And, uh, it, how about Boss Lisa or Lisa the Boss? <laughs> like that. So we had a big weekend, a big Saturday of racing, at least at Colonial Downs. This was the the new the new location of the Arlington Million card. I don't know if that's going to be the location going forward yet to be determined. But it was also, more importantly, my first visit to Colonial Downs. The star of the show was, of course, me. All the horses were all right. Um, but it was it, it was a fun trip. But it boy, it was hotter than Hades. Virginia in the middle of August, it was 95 degrees plus humidity, um, but we'll talk about a couple of results. Uh, set piece won the Arlington Million stakes coming from way, way back. He's a horse I always thought was a little bit of a disappointment. He's got a big closing kick, but he just never won that big race. But maybe what he wanted to do was go a mile and a quarter all along. Shout out to friend of the show, Mark Cassie, winning the Beverly D with Fev Rover. She looked like a winner every step of the way and, and cruised home. So that's a winning year in for the Breeders' Cup Philly and Mare Turf. So she's coming around really nicely as well. In the Secretariat Stakes, unfortunately, the, the one of the races I was there for, Northern Invader, did not run that well. But it was, you know, it was the kind of day where... You could excuse any kind of middling effort or, you know, so-so effort because, damn, it was hot. Northern Vader came into the paddock pr- pretty sweaty. And uh, just some some horses don't handle the heat. But the race was won by Gigante, who's a Steve Asmussen horse, just held off Nagarok in the, in the shadow of the wire. Very hard horse to have at 22 to 1. It was that kind of weird day where it was a lot of prices and then a lot of short prices. John and, and DJ Stable won back-to-back races with Glider. I think we can put up the video of the winner's circle uh, for me in, in, from, from me with Glider in the winner's circle, and then Bouncer won the race after that. West Point had a winner with Integration, won his debut by six and a half lengths in the fourth race. No one has ever been in more winner's circles for horses they don't own than I was on Saturday at Colonial Downs. They might as well have put a plaque on the wall in that winner's circle. But it, it was a cool experience, um, and it was – it was a good crowd, especially in the dining hall. And it, 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 we love that turf course. 
John, you know, what were your impressions from, from Saturday's races other than the great success that you guys had? Well, it was it was great. You know, we we're very fortunate to, to win not one but two races that day, especially because the race for Bouncer was supposed to be run two weeks prior. Um, but it was when they had a heat index and they actually canceled racing and moved this handicap uh, to, uh, you know, to the big racing day. Joe, I thought it was really interesting um, about Gigante because not only did, did the horse come off, you know, from last to first and win um, and just just get there in the last couple of strides. But I don't know if you realize this. He's a Virginia bred. So it was great, you know, that that he got to show off his wares um, in his home state in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, But also Gigante is a son of not this time who is standing at Taylor Taylor made. Yeah, we went full circle for that, you know, just just for our, uh, all of our sponsors. Um, so I was really pleased to see that horse come in at, at 20 to one. And and Fevrover is a horse that that I've honestly been tracking since she was a two year old in Europe. We actually made an offer on her um, that was subsequently you know, denied. Um, and then the horse went into public auction and, and uh, you know, farmer at, at all were smart enough to buy the horse, albeit for like over a million dollars. I mean, it wasn't, she wasn't a cheap filly. Um, and now she's really starting to come into her own. Um, and she's five years old now. And, and I think that the fact that she could go gate to wire and, and, um, Castellano Javier just slowed the pace down so much. You know, I think, I think every quarter was like 25, um, for the first, you know, for the first quarter, the, the, the half, the six furlong mark. Um, and he just lulled everyone to sleep. So by the time that, uh, that they got to the top of the stretch, uh, Fevrover still had a ton of, uh, of, of, of energy left and, and just, you know, basically blew away from everyone else. Um, but overall, it was a great day of racing, albeit it was so freaking hot. But it, as you said, but it was a phenomenal card that they put together. Um, and, and, you know, Colonial Downs is one of those racetracks that 10 years ago, they weren't even in existence. Uh, and, and now they've kind of revolutionized and shown the way of, of making a really strong regional program. And I think that they put Virginia back on the map as far as a, a state to be reckoned with when it comes to racing. Yeah, now that was the biggest day in Virginia racing history. They, I don't think they had ever had a grade one at that track, much, much less two and then another, another grade two on top of it. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a fabulous day of racing and I like, you know, I just like that turf course better than Churchill's. I think it's just, it's more akin. It's, it's closer to the Arlington turf course, which is where these races should be running, being, being run in the first place. But yeah. And Joe, it, I know from, you were there. So I, I, I wonder what, what your feeling was, but from, from TV, watching it on the computer, it looked pristine. I mean, the, the turf course looked like, um, it looked almost like the putting greens at Augusta. I mean, it was just that perfect um and and it wasn't like a painted you know like some racetracks on big days that kind of paint their their turf course to make it look green that really looked like it was strong bermuda grass and and uh i know that that the horse that we ran on on the turf you know javier came back and said wow he was really really took to yeah. this course and it's like it's a great it's a better friendly track too they have a 12 percent takeout for the pick five so I'm, I'm always happy to see tracks like that get in the spotlight, if even just for a day. They do have one more big card later in the meet at the Virginia Derby card, so I think that's in, in sept- mid-September or so. Just one other horse I wanted to mention from the weekend, because otherwise it was a pretty slow weekend in terms of stakes races. How cool is Casa Creed, man? Like, he is he is one of my favorite horses in training. It's just nails. It just shows up every time, six furlongs, a mile. And for whatever reason, he's almost almost never favored. There's always, like, somebody else, like Caravel was favored over him in the Jiper. Uh 
Annapolis was favored over him on Saturday, even though Casagreed had just beaten Annapolis and the prep for that race. So he's just one of those horses that never quite gets the respect that I think he deserves. Same thing for his sire, Jimmy Creed, who I think is is one of the more underrated stallions in the entire world. Um, but I just wanted to give a, a hat tip to, to Casagreed, who's been a, been a great, great horse for Mike Francesa to Pope. The sports pope, Mike Francesa and Lee Einseidler and Bill Mott and Luis Saez. It's super, super nice horse. And we, we love those horses that are just so hardy to show up every time with a big, big time effort. So, so shout out to Casa Great. Hope to see him. If I could book a future on him in the Breeders' Cup mile, I would do that right now. Because he probably would, would be like 8 or 10 to 1. Because we're probably excited. He probably would. You know, Cody's wish will be the favorite. Well, the, the, the turf mile. Yeah, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Assuming that there's probably going to be a bunch of good euros, I feel like you're probably going to be able to get eight or 10 to one on him. But I love him. One of my favorite horses in training. Rail Talk is sponsored by Facing Tipton. We talked last week about the booming success of the Facing Tipton Saratoga sale. And then two weeks, bef- a week before that, we were on the grounds as they were prepping for the Facing Saratoga sale. So it's been all Facing all the time. And that continued the last two days with the Facing Tipton New York bread yearling sale. The first session was last night. The second session just wrapped up today. We're recording this on Monday. Uh, it was, you know, it's not quite the social event that the, the the select yearling sale is, but it was a still a good crowd there last night. And I just, I love, I love that nighttime atmosphere. They sold a lot of really nice horses. West Point, I believe we bought three, uh, unless we bought one in between when I started that sentence and now. Uh, I think, which is which can happen with West Point, and, uh, and we're really excited about the three we got. We got a War of Will Colt, a Laoban Colt, and a Dare, Daredevil Philly. So we're really excited about those three. And the New York Bread program is obviously super, super lucrative. And uh, you know, John, you can you can speak to this better than me. Every, the the Facing Saratoga Select Sale grows every year, but that's you know that's been established for a long time. The New York bread sale has become its own thing. Can you can you talk about the growth that you've seen in that sale? Joe, you're exactly right. And and growth not only in in amount of money spent on New York breads, um, but just in the number of horses that have been entered into this particular Fezic Tipped and Saratoga sale. I don't know if you realize, but they actually built a new barn for Taylor made at Fasic Tipton. And then for this sale, just for the, uh, for the New York bread sale, they had so many horses that wanted to sell there. They actually put up temporary stalls. They made, they put tents up um, with temporary stalls to accommodate the additional, I think it was 30 something horses that wanted to be sold at that sale. So uh, the sale is growing in leaps and bounds. The numbers are, are almost about the same as they were last year, Joe, again, subject to the last couple of horses going through the ring. But um, last year, the New York breads on average brought 107,000. And uh, this year, after the first day was over, they averaged 113,000. They averaged a little bit under 100,000 so far today. So the averages are going to be roughly about the same. And the medians are going to be roughly about the same, somewhere around $74,000, $75,000, um, which shows you that, that if you bring a good, solid New York bread to that sale, you're going to walk away with some cash because most of the stallions in New York aren't standing for, you know, for a ton of money. So it's a great return on investment if you breed to Central Banker for 7,500 or, or, you know, when Leoban was up here or Salamini. There's a, there's a really good crop of, of stallions in New York. Um, and if you beget a good New York bred horse, you're going to get some money for it. Another story we want to, we want to mention that, uh, you know, we, we've discussed this before in, in past past podcast lives. This has been a topic of discussion uh, for a while now, which is the Preakness potentially moving to accommodate the Preakness. 
basically, because, you know, the, the Belmont does just fine being five weeks after the Kentucky Derby. Preakness has been has suffered more and more in recent years being in that middle jewel position two weeks after the Derby, three weeks before the Preakness. A lot of times, you, I mean, Mage was the only horse this year that ran in both the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness. We saw Rich Strike pass on the Preakness as the Derby winner. I think that was the real seismic shift in terms of the way people looked at the triple crown spacing. So first racing has announced that they are considering, they're giving strong consideration to moving the date of the Preakness. So it's run four weeks after the Kentucky Derby. Now the problem is Belmont and Naira do not seem on board with this. So we might get to a point where there is no more triple crown because it's like physically impossible for the horses to run in all three races. This is going to be a little bit of a game of chicken, I think, in the next couple of years. Uh, I just want to read a quote from from Aiden Butler, who is the CEO of First Racing. He said, we've discussed it internally and believe it's in the best interest of horses and horse safety to move the race four weeks after the Kentucky Derby. This would give horses more time to recover between races to be able to run in the Preakness. Horse safety is more important than tradition. Naira is aware and considering how this would impact the Belmont. Stay tuned. I mean, John, that that is such bullshit, my man. Like that is like we have the siren go off for that because like you're it's like not to, not to say that Aiden Butler and first racing don't care about horse safety, but that is not the impetus for this move. You just you want a better field and, a you know, a more stacked race um, for the Preakness. But, John, you know, we haven't spoken about this in a while. Maybe your opinions have changed. I felt like we were both kind of traditionalists on this thing. Where are you at now with switching the Triple Crown's spacing? Yeah, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head. Previously, I, I was all in favor of keeping things as is because there is so much gravitas and so much um, importance on the Triple Crown and the fact that there hadn't been one for so many years, for decades. Uh, and now we've gotten a couple, uh, you know, it, not in a row, but, a, you know, a couple of the past couple of years. So we've been a little spoiled. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, breeders like to have horses that have as many grade one wins as possible. Um, they associate on the dirt. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Derby uh, is is in itself its own island. Um, you know, it's a standalone. The Preakness, we talked about uh, a couple of shows ago and all the stallion prospects that came out of the Preakness. So obviously, uh, you know, it, it is it is a race that, that people respect. Um, but for the recent times, the Preakness has been the redheaded stepchild of the Triple Crown. Uh, people just not only don't care, they, like you said, they've been skipping it. And I think when COVID hit and the entire Triple Crown calendar got turned upside down. I think that's when people started to see, hmm, maybe we should, you know, move this thing around a little bit because if we can get a better, you know, group of horses running here, um, it only benefits us, you know, for overall. And Joe, I know, I remember we talked about this a couple of years ago where we, you and I brought up the idea at the time of the Preakness maybe being downgraded. Um, and not being a grade one race because it just wasn't getting the, the grade one caliber horses for the most part that were coming in. And, and, you know, our third host at the time scoffed at that. But if you look at it, if you took the name of Preakness off of, off of that and you said, here are the horses that are competing in it, it is not a legitimate grade one compared to, you know, the Derby the Belmont, the Jim Dandy, uh, the Breeders' Cup races. It, it just doesn't compare to those. And and to me, you know, as a purist, grade ones have to be that great. They have to be that difficult of a race to win. Otherwise, they, they lose their value. Um, so I, I think that it's a necessary move. As much as I don't want to see it happen, 
as a purist, I, I, I think it's going to happen because um, there's really nothing keeping them together. There's no there's there's no agreement um, that that the you know, that Churchill and First and and Naira have to stay together in that order, in that sequence um, of events. And and really, it's kind of turning into an every man for himself at this point. Um, so I don't blame, you know, First for doing this and, and, and Strunk Group for doing this. Uh, but I really don't want it to happen. I think it's I think it's inevitable. I think, well, it's I think yeah, I agree. And I think that they're kind of put, trying to put the early pressure on Naira because like Naira's, Naira's defense has been all along like we're traditionalists. We don't want to mess with the triple crown. But if the Preakness moves to four weeks after the Derby and you stay where you are, you're 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 messing with the triple crown. Like obviously the, the first racing made the move. But if you care that much about the triple crown and they do that, then you got to move, too. Because there's absolutely no way anybody's going to run in all three races. And I, I, you know, I think it's also unfortunate. I've made this point before. I think it's also a little bit, unfortunately, kowtowing to trainers who do not want to run their horses more than four, five, maybe, maybe God, heaven forbid, six times a year. Like that's that to me is is kind of rewarding is is rewarding that you know, I'm not going to say cowardice, but like. Lack of lack of competitive <laughs> fire, you know, if you don't want to run your horses more than four times a year. But the other the, the question for me, I think, and then we'll see, because like you said, I think this is happening. If we do four weeks, four weeks, four weeks, is the public still going to care and be able to have their attention as transfixed as it is by the Triple Crown? Because that's one of the nice things about the Triple Crown It's three races, five weeks. I think asking the public to follow horse racing for an eight week period I mean, I think, you know, we'll see. Well, I'd I'd just be interested when this does happen, because it is going to happen, what the TV ratings are going to be like. But yeah. Right. Right. And and Joe, just a question for you. I'm I'm curious about your opinion. So let's say that that this all gets turned upside down and that and that the Triple Crown gets elongated as far as on the calendar goes. And there's going to be ramifications as far as what other races get bumped because of that or get moved or, or, you know, or, or eliminated altogether. If they're going to make the calendar change, if Naira makes the calendar change and decides that they, you know, are going to keep it four weeks after the Preakness, do they change the distance? Because nobody in the breeding industry wants to have a mile and a halfer. They're not breeding for a mile and a half. They don't want to have stallion prospects that run a mile and a half. Do they cut it back at that point? Since they're making a change, they might as well pull the whole bandaid yeah, off. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's going to be the next topic. Is like the the horses are are too fragile to run a mile and a half. And it's just, it's such an antiquated distance, which the latter part is, is definitely true. But I mean, it's just, it's supposed to be different. Like this is my, this is my whole problem. And I don't want to come off as like a stodgy traditionalist, but the, the triple crown is supposed to be different from the rest of the racing calendar and the the rest of the distances that, that we normally run. It's supposed to be an extraordinary test. If it was just like everything else, it wouldn't be as special, you know, and we, there are plenty of other races out there that the public would never, ever in a million years care about. This is sold and marketed to the public as the test of the champion. I mean, that's the Belmont specifically, but this is the test of the champion. These three races together that's only that's the only reason that there's have only been 13 horses to do it in history, because it's supposed to be difficult. It's supposed to be unique. But this is the way of the world now, John. Rail Talk is sponsored by TaylorMade Sales, TaylorMade Stallions as well. A whole TaylorMade umbrella hand in hand with Rail Talk. Uh, we saw the Not This Timeshare sell at Facing Tipton, Saratoga. They've had a bunch of horses go through the ring. Obviously, the four million dollar Curlin Beholder. You can always ha- you can always hang your hat on on having sold that horse. Uh, they had a bunch of success throughout the rest of that sale and the New York bread sale. 
And they got a bunch of entries coming up for some of the other sales, John. What, what have you seen? Well, Joe, you know, you bring up the fact that they sold the $4 million yearling um, at the Saratoga sale. I just saw, you know, a press release that said that that was TaylorMade's 59th sale topper. 59 times they've rung the bell as having the best and most expensive horse at a sale. That just blew my mind. That's like that's like the New York Yankees of 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 uh, consigners as far as that goes. Um, and then, you know, they roll right into that. Uh, they never sleep. They roll right into from the select yearling sale to the New York bred yearling sale and now to the digital horses of racing age sale um, that'll be going on in, in about 10 days or so, where, again, they have the most horses entered out of any consigner. Um, so the TaylorMade group is just kicking ass and taking names and then rolling into the next sale and kicking ass and taking more names. Hats off to TaylorMade. Just one more shout out, Joe, if you don't mind, just indulge me for a minute. Um, but ironically enough, two former trainers of ours are, uh, are on the cusp of major milestones. Um, John's service is at 1,999 career victories. Uh, you know that John won the Oaks, Kentucky Oaks with Catherine Sophia, won the Derby with Smarty Jones, and won a Breeders' Cup as well with, with a filly named Jaywalk. Um, so congratulations to John's service in advance of getting your 2,000th victory. I'm excited for him. And then Joe Orsino um, actually got his, what I'll say, his 2,000th victory because he won it, it's very typically, in a dead heat. So some people would say he's got 1999 and a half wins. Some people will say 2000 wins. But Joe Racino won uh, his 2000th career race with a 20 to one shot. Lord Edder Stark, uh, the ninth race at Gulfstream. Uh, Joe had seven different grade one winners, won the Preakness with Red Bull. Uh, Red Bullet, excuse me, and, and uh, the Breeders' Cup with Macho Uno and Perfect Sting. Two gentlemen, two absolutely phenomenal trainers, um, and, and I consider them both friends of mine. They've taught me a tremendous amount of the industry about the industry, and uh, I just can't uh, you know, thank them enough for everything they've done for me and for our family, and I'm so happy that both of them are uh, on 2,000 victories. Congratulations, well, guys. Well-deserved milestones, two great guys, like you said, and we're always in favor on this show of Joe and John's success. Very good. I like what you did there. I see what you did there, Joe. <laughs> All right. So that's going to do it for this edition, episode seven of Rail Talk. Stay tuned. Also, later this week for another breakaway Rail Talk. Love John's first episode. I'm going to be doing the next one. Um, so be on the lookout for that. In the meantime, I want to thank Lisa Lazarus for coming on. Always a good guest. And we look forward to having her again on in the future. Thank my buddy John Green to this side of me. Our producer, Patty Wolf, our associate producers, Anthony LaRocca, Aaliyah LaRocca, Nathan Wilkinson, and most of all, thanks to you, I guess the sponsors too, Facing Tip Tip, TaylorMade, and the Green Group, but most of all, you, the listeners and the viewers, we appreciate you tuning in. We'll see you soon. <laughs>